You're listening to episode 13 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to episode 13 of Chat About Children. Today's episode is all about your child's eyes and vision and I will be chatting to Amy Fortescue, a behavioural optometrist and we get to chat about a few interesting areas when it comes to eyes and vision. We look at when to get eyes and vision checked in children. We also look at learning difficulties and how vision is an important component that we do need to look into. We touch on colour blindness and also we look at screens and their impact on eyes and Amy does discuss some of the latest research there. And we also look at good eye hygiene for children, which is super important when we're looking at making sure that our children's eyes are looked after as best they can be. So let's get started and chat to Amy. Joining me today is Amy Fortescue. She is an optometrist with a passion for children's vision, eye disease management and short-sightedness control. Amy graduated from the University of New South Wales with first class honours in 2010 and has since completed a number of courses in behavioural optometry. Amy's love for optometry began when she started working in her father's optometry practice at the age of 15. Amy has worked as a clinical supervisor at the University of New South Wales Optometry Clinic and is a member of the IQ Advisory Group. She's also now a mother to 20-month-old Mia. Amy's passion for behavioural optometry and helping all patients to have the best vision and health possible has now grown exponentially. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Sonia. I'm looking forward to having a chat. Yeah, absolutely. And today we're chatting all about children, their eyes and their vision. So who better to talk to than a behavioural optometrist? Amy, vision is one of those things that's just super important in terms of it being just so critical for our children to be able to learn effectively. And learning and school readiness is something that I'm very passionate about. And good eye health and vision is just one of those fundamental areas that we can't overlook when we're considering giving our children opportunities for optimal learning. So I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of today's chat. And you being a behavioural optometrist, I'm just going to start with that, Amy. Can you tell us what is it that firstly made you want to be an optometrist and then what was it that made you want to specialise in the branch of behavioural optometry? Sure, Sonia. So as you alluded to in my introduction, my father is an optometrist. So I grew up living and breathing an optometry practice. I started working there, I think, as soon as I was able to file patient cards. So as soon as I knew the alphabet. And then, yeah, when I got into sort of high school, I knew I wanted to do something in health. And I sort of looked at all the different areas. I really was quite sort of adamant that optometry was where I wanted to be. I then sort of spent about five years working as an optometrist in dad's practice. And my dad's practice is is quite, it's got a lot of areas of specialty. So we specialise in advanced contact lens fittings and behavioural optometry was another area that they sort of looked that they specialised in. And that was certainly the area that got me most intrigued. I'm also very short-sighted and behavioural optometry offered I guess, some explanations for perhaps why I had become short-sighted. So it just was, it sort of became something that really kind of resonated with me. Yeah, it sounds that way if you're so passionate about it from such a young age. So tell us a bit more about how behavioural optometry is different to optometry because I would say most people wouldn't know the difference between the two. 
Sure, and it's a really good question. Behavioural optometry is, is I guess, a holistic way of practising optometry that examines not just your eyesight and your eye health and your prescription, which is what general optometry tends to look at. It also looks at how you actually use your eyes. So we look at eye function. Functional vision includes things like the quality and smoothness of your eye movements, how well you can focus your eyes, so zooming in and zooming out, and also looks at how well the eyes team together to provide a single clear and stable view of the world. It also goes further and looks at visual processing too, so what vision is coming into the brain, how the, what the brain then does with that. So we look at things like visual analysis skills, visual spatial skills, visual motor skills. So it's really looking at how we then use that visual information to then, I guess, allow us to learn. So just so I've got that right. So with all the visual processing elements you've just mentioned, they're all really critical for then learning to read effectively. Would that be one of the the key areas? Definitely. I think visual function and visual processing are both critical for for good reading. So typically the, the two will If you have a problem with visual functioning, you'll often have a problem with visual processing as well, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. And yeah, certainly those two areas are really important with reading. Absolutely. Awesome. So let's just clarify, and I'm doing this just because I might know a little bit more than someone who doesn't work with behavioral optometrists. So optometrists, when someone goes in to see an optometrist, they bring their child in, what is the optometrist likely to to actually do in in that consult if they say, you know, I just want to get my child's eyes checked? What will they do? And then how will it look different if someone walks into you? Sure. So there's such a wide range of how optometrists conduct an eye exam. But essentially, if you were to go into a general optometrist who doesn't have much interest in children's vision, they'll do an eyesight test, which is where you'll read the letters off the chart. They'll then often measure your prescription. So they'll put you behind that weird big sort of robot looking goggle machine and they'll take a measurement of what your prescription would be if you needed glasses and they then look at your eye health to make sure that everything is healthy. One of the fundamental things of behavioural optometry is that you can actually have 20-20 vision but not actually have great functional vision and Mm. it's something that you know we see a lot of so I actually had a referral only two weeks ago from a patient she was seven she had seen an optometrist who had measured 20-20 vision but she was still having some major problems with her comprehension and reading at school. When she was referred to me, I immediately looked at her ability to turn her eyes inwards. So we call that converging. And obviously when you read and look at things up close, the eyes have to turn inwards and she couldn't really do it at all. She had shocking convergence. Interestingly, her father had the same problem and so did her grandmother. So some of these visual function problems can be quite genetic. But straight away, we could see, okay, this is what's really hindering her. So while she could see in the distance okay, when we looked at her up-close vision and her function, she really struggled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a really good example to illustrate how it would look. So from what age can a child's vision and eyes be reliably tested? I mean, you mentioned the optometrist going in and reading letters. I mean, children can't read letters necessarily if they're too young to do that. So when's the time to get a child's vision and eyes checked reliably? That's a really good question. We actually have a lot of objective techniques that we can do on children and babies even to work out if there's a a problem with their vision and their eye function. So essentially my recommendation is to parents, if they have any concern with their child's vision at any time, whether it's from the age of three months old, take them to an optometrist who specialises in children's vision and they will be able to assess them without the requirement of reading any letters. If you want to have a decent eye test, 
I tend to recommend around the age of about three. Most optometrists have a chart called a Lear chart, which is symbols, so a square, a circle, a house, and they call it a love heart or an apple. And we get them often just to match those symbols to a card that they're holding. So we can actually test even three-year-olds quite well. Yeah. Definitely just before starting school, the really critical time. So if you haven't had your child tested until then, definitely that you know, at least a term before they start formal education is really, really critical to have their eyes tested. Yeah, absolutely. And so for the kids that are younger than three, what are some kind of signs or symptoms that something might not be quite right with their eyes or their vision? What are we looking for? Sure. So the biggest one is an eye turning in or out while the other points straight ahead. Also frequent blinking or rubbing of the eyes is one that's quite classic. Noticing a child working really close to an iPad, so that child that just wants to get right up in the iPad or even to their book, they'll want to get nice and close or close to the television, that's another symptom. Red or watery eyes or any real general developmental delay, they're the real critical signs of the little kids that there's something could be happening with their vision. Okay, fantastic. And they're really handy things to know and look out for. So I know that there are different ages and stages that children's eyes tend to change. And so Mm -hmm. I know it's recommended that at different ages, you should get their eyes rechecked. So for example, with my kids, I knew from you that I needed to get them checked before they started school. So I followed that up. And then there's a recommendation to follow it up again and get them checked at around age seven. Is that right? Because their eyes change. Yeah, look, it's not so much that their eyes change, it's that what they're required to do is changing. So when we talk about visual function, when we get children learning to read, particularly in kindergarten or those really early years of school, we don't really require them to focus up close for very long periods of time. When we get into the end of year one and year two, we're then starting to get kids that need to be looking up close and focusing on reading sort of tasks sometimes for, you know, 10, 15 minutes at a time. And what that means is that the visual function that was required of them in kindy is very different to the visual function that's required in year one and year two. What it means is that kids that may have had a visual function problem in those early years were able to cope with it, whereas as they start to need to read more and smaller print, we start to see these kids falling behind. So it's funny, often the children that need glasses for the classroom are the ones that were performing really, really well in kindy in year one. And then all of a sudden, the parents just see that they're starting to plateau and they're just not quite achieving their potential. And they're often the ones that we pick up and often have quite, you know, fixable problems. Yeah, well, it makes sense. It's kind of like that stamina needs to increase as they get a little bit older, the demands increase in the classroom. And so they've got to keep up with those demands and that's where things can fall apart a little bit for some kids that don't have the stamina or that visual endurance. Is that how you'd kind of summarise it? 100%. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, this is relevant for some countries or states, for us anyway, where we have government screeners that occur, where we're living in New South Wales, there are government screeners that come out to childcares and preschools. And can you just tell us very briefly what those screens check and again, what they do check, what they don't check and why it's important not to rely on them? Great question. So the screeners that we see rolled out in preschools are really looking for major eye problems. The major eye problems we're looking for are things like lazy eyes, where one eye can't see as well as the other, and also eye turns. They're the two main things they're looking for. 
plus any major ocular health issue. So what we find is that the screeners will pick up some major structural problems with the eye, but they don't look at, again, the function. And that's what we were really talking about with behavioural optometry. So how well are the eyes actually working as a team? How well are they focusing? And, you know, how well are they tracking along a page? So what's great about the screeners is that they do pick up kids that have lazy eye. And to sort of describe what lazy eye is, it's where one eye may be slightly turned or have a really high prescription. And as a result, it doesn't see as well as the other eye. When the brain realises that one eye is seeing clearer than the other, it actually starts to send more nerve endings to the eye that sees better and almost starts to switch off nerves to the eye that's not as functional. And what we then see is that the eye becomes lazy and it doesn't matter that you put glasses on the child, that eye will still be weak because there's been a neurological change. So it's important that that gets picked up before the age of seven, the earlier they pick it up the better and the screeners definitely pick that up but as I said they don't, they don't look at how well the eyes would work say in a classroom and, and that's where the concern is because a lot of parents will believe their child has had their eyes checked and we might not see them until year five year six and they often can be major vision function problems that could have been solved earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And really, this is what this chat is about, is increasing the awareness so that if anyone out there does need to be proactive and take action early, they've got the awareness now to be able to do that. Yeah. So for me, as a long-term speech pathologist, and I've worked heavily with children who have learning difficulties, difficulties with reading, spelling, with writing, some places term it as dyslexia. And as I said earlier, we do need to consider vision as one of those fundamentals what can behavioural optometry do to pretty much assist children that have learning difficulties? We've talked a little bit already about how you assess, you know, the eyes and the function, etc. Mm-hmm. But if I were to send someone to you to say, hey, they've got some learning issues, check it out. And if you check things out and they do need to have some kind of follow-up, what kind of follow-up do you do? What does it entail? What does it look like? Sure. I guess the first thing to probably say is that behavioural optometrists and any optometrist do not treat dyslexia, but what they do is they treat vision problems that can often be coexisting with dyslexia. Many studies have now shown that patients with dyslexia have a much higher incidence of vision function problems. And we definitely know that vision problems affect reading speed, fluency, concentration and comprehension. So by identifying and treating a visual problem, often reading speed and comprehension can improve without actually having to give any direct reading instruction. And we also know that if you're long-sighted, which means you can see better in the distance and you can up close, that's also got a, a much stronger association with decreased reading performance compared to other issues. So essentially, by sending a child with learning difficulties to a behavioural optometrist, what you're doing is you're essentially ruling out any vision problem that could be coexisting with the learning difficulty or potentially causing the learning difficulty. Yep, awesome. So when you do identify something going on, what's involved in the therapeutic side in vision therapy? What does that look like? Sure. So generally, the first step will be prescribing a lens to that child to be worn in the classroom for homework for any reading or learning activities. And what that lens will often do is it will support that child to use their focusing system better. A lot of parents are concerned when we prescribe reading glasses to kids because as parents, you know, once you hit that mid-40s mark, most people start to need reading glasses and parents are aware that as they need those glasses, they become quite dependent on them. Glasses for children are very different. I always say to parents, 
it's like prescribing an orthotic for a child to give them better posture. We're prescribing them a supportive lens to give them better visual posture. So they don't become reliant on them and their eyes don't become weaker for wearing them. But what they do is they allow that child to perform much better. Once we have the lens prescribed, we'll then often just monitor them for a little while and make sure that that lens is the right lens for them. If we sort of see after prescribing the lens that there's still some room for improvement, some behavioural optometrists offer vision therapy. And vision therapy is typically where the child will come into the practice once a week. It can often go for a couple of terms. And that's where the optometrist will basically give the child eye exercises to make their visual system perform better. They're often given a lot of homework too. It's important that when children are prescribed vision therapy that all other allied health professionals that are working with that child are consulted. So, for example, if the child's seeing a speech pathologist as well as the optometrist, as well as an occupational therapist, it's always good for that team to work together to sort of say, okay, which therapy should happen this term? Because often having lots of different therapies can be quite overwhelming for both the parents and for the child. So it's good to work a really team environment in those sort of situations. Yeah, absolutely. And having that collaborative approach is going to maximise the therapy outcomes in the long term. So that communication is definitely something that I aspire to, to work within that kind of framework all the time. So very, very valid point. So when we talk about dyslexia and some people, when they hear the term, they think about coloured lens and I don't know a great deal about them. And I don't think many do know a great deal apart from having heard of coloured lens and sometimes even people using coloured paper. So can you tell us a little bit more about it and any evidence that you're aware of that supports or doesn't support the use of coloured lens and paper? Sure. Look, the use of tinted lenses and coloured overlays, we call them coloured overlays, for treatment of reading problems continues to be very controversial. The reason for that is that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that dyslexia can be assisted with coloured lenses, but there's not a whole lot of science backing it up. What we do know, if we look at the research, is that there is a condition called pattern glare, and pattern glare can be very much aided with coloured lenses and overlays. What pattern glare is, is it's where patients will be quite photophobic, so very light sensitive, and they'll be extremely sensitive when viewing a pattern of repetitive striped lines. So basically black and white lines across a page, if a patient looks at that and just goes, oh my gosh, I can't, oh, I can't stand looking at that, that's often a, a way of us diagnosing pattern glare. When we look at reading material, printed reading material can sometimes have that same effect of these rows of words and spacing. And often people with pattern glare will find that when they go to look at reading material, they'll get these same symptoms of discomfort and glare off the page. Those patients will often benefit from having a tinted lens. And if you sort of say, well, who's the sort of person that has pattern glare? It can often occur with people that have got brain injuries, concussion, epilepsy, migraine, autism. So they're the sort of most typical groups that suffer with pattern glare. If we look at people with learning difficulties and tints, as I said, there's, there's not a whole lot of research that backs it up. Mears was the first person that described the use of colour for people with reading issues in 1980. Um, and Helen Erlen, she popularised the term Erlen syndrome uh, in the late, late 1980s and sort of franchised these Erlen clinics to many people. And essentially what they did was they prescribed coloured lenses for children and adults with significant reading problems. The concern is that there hasn't been a lot of research to back it up. As optometrists, we were sort of worried, is it just patients with pattern glare getting confused with patients with reading issues? 
A study this year, however, did look at green filters and they did say that it did improve reading performance in children with dyslexia. So, you know, it's definitely an area that's still getting a lot of research and a lot of attention. And my opinion is really that if a patient has problems with, with reading, it's important to first rule out that there's any visual function problem. Um, and if there's nothing that can be improved with just a standard lens, then it's worthwhile trialing different tints or using what we call a colorimeter to pick a tint. So research Whoa, say, is still- Say that again, using a what? <laughs> it's called a, color, a colorimeter. So there's actually a, a, a machine that optometrists can have in their practices that trials lots of different tints. They've got one at the Uni of New South Wales um, and some behavioral optometrists have it. And that's, mm. yeah, basically a machine that looks at different tints. So it's definitely an area that has, um, you know, a lot of time and money that's gone into it. And there's definitely some, you know, credibility there, but just there's not a whole lot of hard evidence that backs it up. Okay, fantastic. And that's really interesting info too. So really follow the guidance of someone like a behavioural optometrist who isn't trying to, I guess, sell any specific products, but really just have a good general, you know, I guess, clinical look at what's happening and, and yeah, that's correct. come from there. Cool. So another question for you, look, when I was growing up, and I don't know if this still happens nowadays, but my parents would always say to me, like, you don't sit so close to the TV because it's going to ruin your eyes. <laughs> and so, and I'm sure they're not the only ones that would kind of say, you know, don't sit too close to the TV or don't look at, um, even nowadays, you know, don't sit so close to the iPad or whatever it may be, where kids have, might have a tendency to do that sometimes. Does it affect or, or can it affect their vision and can too much screen time affect vision? What's kind of the latest, you know, going evidence on all of that? Yes, it's the great debate at the moment, isn't it? Mm. Screen time and vision. At this point in time, there's not a whole lot of hard evidence to support that screen time has major impacts on vision. What we do know, though, is that myopia, which is also known as short-sightedness, is increasing around the world at rates that are very, very scary. What myopia means is that you can see quite well up close, but you can't see in the distance. And the problem with myopia is that often once you have it, particularly if you acquire it when you're at school age, Every year that goes on, you'll become more and more myopic or more short-sighted. In Asia, in East Asia, it's now in 90% of young adults. Uh, in Australia, it's not so bad, but the incidence of myopia in 12-year-old children has doubled in the past half decade. So we, we know that it's not as bad here as it is in East Asia, but it's definitely going up. Now, why is myopia a problem? Well, as you become more short-sighted, number one, your vision gets worse and you really become reliant on glasses and contact lenses. But more importantly, as you become more short-sightedness, there's some major eye health concerns. So your risk of retinal detachment starts to increase, your risk of glaucoma increases, your risk of cataract increases, and your risk of a condition called myopic maculopathy increases. Basically, these things are the things that send you blind. And that this is the major concern around the world now um, because as people become more short-sighted, there's these major eye health concerns that are having huge impacts on people's lives but also on, on the economy, just, you know, with, with the economies trying to keep up with the, the, um, the health burden. So how does short-sightedness relate to screen time? Well, there's been lots and lots of studies that have looked at, you know, how much time we spend working at near, how that affects short-sightedness. And really, you know, 
the, the best evidence we've got is that they know that the more time you spend outside, the less likely you are to be short-sighted. So that's the, the definite, definite hard evidence that we know. So we know more outdoor hours equates to less likely to be short-sighted. Um, but there's been, oh, there would have been thousands of studies over the years where they've looked at, especially in Asia, children in high urban areas versus children in rural areas. And they've found that there's more short-sightedness in the urban areas. There's been studies looking at high-intensity educational high schools versus more lax high schools. And again, they've found more short-sightedness. So essentially, you know, there's, no, there's not a whole lot of direct links between screen time and short-sightedness, but we can kind of put it all together and assume that more screen time means less time outdoors and, and you know, that type of association. So yeah, yeah. That, so there's that a correlation that way. There's definitely a correlation going on, yeah. Okay. So what about those, um, those screen attachment thingies that people look at putting, you know, over their computer screens, uh, you know, for a while that, that seemed to be the thing that people were, were purchasing. Is that still, you know, is there any validity in, in those things? And I hope people know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the name it's all is. About, it's all about blue light blocking. So That's there's a lot, of, um, a lot of information out there at the moment about blue light blocking lenses and the damaging effects of blue light. And it's a really good question um, because it's certainly, you know, I had a friend contact me just the other day saying, oh, I think I'm going to get my husband some blue light blocking lenses. What do you think? Essentially, at this point in time, there's no high quality evidence to support the contention that blue light blocking lenses benefit visual functioning, sleep or retinal health. So essentially, the first question was, we know that blue light is damaging. Computers emit blue light. Screens emit blue light. So are they damaging our retina? And what the studies found was that, in fact, just going out in the sunshine, there's a a significant more amount of blue light coming out of the sun. So we're getting a lot more damage just walking outside without sunglasses. So that kind of got rid of that question. The next question was, well, does the blue light coming out of the screen affect our body clocks and our melatonin levels so that our sleep is affected? And again, they haven't really found any hard evidence to support that either. So at this point in time, there's really no evidence to support that the blue light blocking lenses are having any positive effects. All right. Busting some myths, Amy. I like Big it. Time. Big time. <laughs> I like it. So just to wrap things up, if, if you could uh, let our listeners know or give us some take-home messages when it comes to children's vision and, and what you want parents and professionals to take away with them today, what is that from you? Sure. I guess there's a few things I probably haven't spoken about, so it's a, a good opportunity to mention them. Um, Take-home messages when it comes to children's vision, um, encourage rest breaks. So when we're looking at near work, we'd like to sort of keep things at 20-minute blocks. So 20 minutes of looking up close, we recommend taking a 20-second break where you look more than 20 metres away. So essentially trying to look out the window or just looking you know, across the room as far away as possible. What that does is that just stops our eyes getting stuck in this focusing spasm of looking up close all the time. Um, another thing we talk about is recommending working at the right distance. And the right distance is actually called the Harmon distance. How you measure the Harmon distance is if you punch yourself in the chin gently, the distance from your fist clenched to your, from your chin to the end of your elbow is about the distance where you should be holding your page or your phone or your iPad. 
Um, and that's a really important distance that children work at even when they're sitting at their desk at school and writing. So the first thing is rest breaks. The second thing is working at the right distance. I guess the next point is just making sure that children are having an eye check at least every two years. You know, with, with ideally, it doesn't have to be a behavioural optometrist, but with an optometrist who's comfortable dealing with children and, and who has the right equipment for dealing with children. Um, and the other big tip would be now, you know, spending more than an hour and a half hours outdoors each day when possible. So really encouraging kids to go outside, kick a ball, ride their bike, um, you know, try, try to get away from the video games and the screens. Um, I really stress to adolescents, particularly those who have vision function problems, to try to get off your phone, you know, stop, stop looking at Facebook and Instagram, you know, go outside, go for a walk, try to do something else. Because obviously with school, they're already looking up close for so long. The schools are introducing uh, laptops and iPads for use all the time. Um, so it's really ideal that we don't spend too much extra recreational time looking at that same place because their eyes just weren't made for it. Yeah, yeah. That's really valuable and really practical tips too. And I think it becomes, it, it, they're almost behaviours that we need to start training in our kids in terms of just how to exercise moderation, isn't it? And for them oh, to be aware, you know, that we need to have those breaks for our eyes and just kind of talking about that explicitly. Um, so they become aware of what they can do on their own as they enter the tween and the teen stage. And we're hoping they're doing it a little more you know, independently. So I think setting up those behaviours early on is, you know, is a really good and valuable take-home message. So, yeah, that's fantastic. So I know, Amy, that um, you've written up uh, an article or a blog post for the Chat About Children website, um, which, you know, is going to be fantastic for our listeners to go and access. And, And that's covering why you know, every child should have their eyes checked. And it's also got some handy tips and some good visual hygiene strategies on there as well. So, Amy, any final words before we wrap it all up? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot in a short space of time. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me and for having a a wonderful chat about children's eyes and vision. Thank you so much, Amy. Thanks, Sonia. And that wraps up the really interesting chat with Amy Fortescue. And I trust that you now have a broader understanding of children's eyes and vision and also what to do to maintain good eye health. Amy's also written a lovely article if you'd like to read up on why every child should have their eyes checked. We've popped that up on chataboutchildren.com in the blog section. So do check that out. And also coming up next episode, we are talking about children's ears, hearing and tonsils and what you need to know. And there I'll be chatting to an ear, nose and throat specialist. So I'm looking forward to having you join me for that one. If you did enjoy today's episode, please do share it with anyone that you feel it is relevant to and who will benefit from it. And I also encourage you to subscribe to the Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich podcast. I celebrate you and I look forward to chatting soon. Bye. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. www.chataboutchildren.com.